Since 1959, the Cuban Revolution has been a main target of the CIA and the entire U.S. government. Before the revolution, Cuba was a de facto colony or semi-colony of the United States. Today, efforts to carry out counter-revolution are intensifying. Cuba is in the crosshairs. We'll talk about what's at stake. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. Today is our inaugural episode as part of Breakthrough News. We are extremely excited about this new video format and collaboration with Breakthrough. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We're joined today by Manolo De Los Santos, founder and co-director of the People's Forum and a researcher with the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research. Manolo, welcome to The Socialist Program. It's a pleasure to join you, Brian. Thank you so much. Uh, Manolo, of course, this is a video on YouTube. It's a podcast, but we're not just journalists. We're also organizers. We're activists. We're people who are engaged in trying to, to make social change. And in that sense, especially because we're here in the United States and the United States government is trying today, as it has been since January 1st, 1959, conducting an operation to overthrow the Cuban Revolution a revolution which has been a beacon of hope and inspiration, not only for people in Cuba, not only for the poor, the dispossessed in Cuba, but for people throughout Latin America, a continent that suffered all of the ravages of colonialism. And even more importantly, Cuba has been an inspiration for people all over the world who want to make change. When you think about Cuba's role in Africa, there's the, the slogan, when Africa called, Cuba answered. And indeed, Cubans went to Africa. They fought the South African military, the seemingly invincible military of the apartheid fascist regime, and defeated it in 1987 and 1988 on the battlefields in Angola. And 13 years later, apartheid ended. Nelson Mandela was freed. I mean, when you think about Cuba's role everywhere, it's so critically important for people who believe in change, who are working for social change. And at the same time, we realize that the United States government since day one has been engaged in a war to destroy this beacon of hope. Anyway, let's talk about what's going on right now, but put it into the historical context of this nonstop war by the U.S. government against a country that formerly was either a colony or a semi-colony of the United States. I mean, this history of US-Cuba relations has definitely been marked by a first phase in which the United States, going back to the administration of Thomas Jefferson, has always seen Cuba as its territory or under its sphere of influence, under its jurisdiction, essentially a colony. And in 1898, when it realized the actual you know, taking over of Cuban territory through the Spanish-American War and destroying 
Cuba's ability to actually attain its full independence and sovereignty, we definitely see a new stage in that history, which is the desire, the push by the Cuban people to become a fully sovereign country. That's what the Cuban revolution basically stood for in 1959. That is why you were right in saying it is a beacon of hope and inspiration, not for leftists or progressive people only, for anyone around the world who believes that sovereignty, that independence are important for the development of a new world, they will stand with Cuba. They see in Cuba the country that has been able to actually stand up to the world's most powerful empire and say, we have chosen a different path towards our development. It's so interesting when you think about why the United States has been engaged in a war against this island country. Clearly, Cuba poses no national security threat to the United States. And if one just looks at basic social indices, you know, are Cubans living longer than they were before 1959? The answer is yes. Are they happier than they were before 1959? Yes, they are. Are black Cubans able to enter professions from which they were barred before 1959? Is there an ample opportunity for this vast part of the population that was the victim of the most brutal and cruel kind of racism? On all of these questions, the answer is affirmatively. So the question then gets posed, why is the U.S. doing this? Why does the U.S. have a blockade? Why the attempt to strangle a country, an island country, under these circumstances. From your point of view, Manolo, what's the big deal? Why is Cuba such a target? I mean, it, it goes back to the same history. I mean, Cuba was the crown jewel of the U.S. presence abroad. If, if U.S. imperialism had one country in the region that served as both its base and at the same time as its casino, as its place of enjoyment, it was Cuba. Cuba was the crown jewel that the U.S. even displayed to other countries about why it was good to be a neo-colony of the United States. And here come this revolution that essentially is defiant, is refusing to submit to U.S. colonialism and U.S. imperialism and says, we want to build our own path. You know, that is ultimately the challenge that Cuba poses more than, you know, is achievements and conquests that the Cuban Revolution has achieved in the last 60 years, it's ultimately that it refuses to submit on even the smallest of things. Because ultimately, the smallest of things are the things that actually make Cuba great. It's not willing to cede its territory for U.S. expansionism. It's not willing to submit its workers to cheap labor to make profits for the U.S. It is not willing to become essentially, again, a neo-colony. Ultimately, the U.S. will never forgive Cuba for that defiance. And it's amazing how 60 years later, somehow president after president after president of the United States has not understood this issue. They continue to see Cuba as a country to be recovered, as, in my words, a slave to be brought back to the plantation. When we think about Cuba in the same time period, 1959, the revolution overthrows the dictator Batista. Cuba reclaims control over its own land, its own labor, its own resources. It becomes free and independent. And even before Fidel announces that Cuba has taken the socialist path, which doesn't happen until 1961, but day one, 
the United States is at war against the revolution. I mean, when one goes back and looks at the you know, now declassified documents, say Operation Mongoose, for instance, the U.S. was engaged in this full spectrum war from the beginning to kill Cuba's leaders, to destroy its economy, to carry out terrorist actions against sugarcane fields, against refineries, against hotels. Uh, thousands of Cubans have died. I think most Americans don't know that more than 3,000 Cubans have died in this nonstop 60-year-long CIA-led terrorist campaign against an island nation that dared to be free. When you think back about all of those efforts, you also can't but notice that during that same time period, the U.S. overthrew a government in Iran. I mean, a little bit before, 1953, six years before. But what was the, what was the crime of the Iranian government? It nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company, now known as BP. So the CIA and British intelligence overthrew it. They imposed sanctions. They created misery. Some part of the Iranian population turned against the government. They were manipulated. And then the government was overthrown. And what did the Iranians get? They got 26 years of the dictator, the Shah. And you think about Guatemala in 1954, right before the Cuban Revolution. What was Arbenz's crime? He nationalized United Fruit Company. What about Salvador Allende? What did Allende do to deserve the overthrow, the CIA military counter-revolution that took tens of thousands of Chilean lives on September 11th? 1973. In each and every one of these instances, those countries were reclaiming control over their own land, labor, and resources. And in each time before the counter-revolution, before the coup d'etat, before the CIA intervention, not only were they faced with threats and terrorist actions, they were completely demonized so that the American people were told each and every one of them was a berserk dictator, a fanatic, ruthless, who must be destroyed, all preparing the American population for this kind of insidious regime change operation against countries that wanted to be free. And I'd like you to talk about how the demonization of Cuba, which has been ongoing during the same decades, is really intensifying, especially uh, since the early part of the summer 2021. Well, it, it's been part of the classic playbook of the anti-communist forces of the military industrial complex in the US to always create an enemy where there is none. And with Cuba for the past 60 years, Cubans went from being the playful, friendly, submissive Cubans where you can you know, go have fun with in the beaches and hotels of Havana before 1959 to then being the warmongering, evil, terroristic Cubans who are threatening the quality of life of Americans you know, who pose a, a real credible threat to the U.S. people. And that's never been the case. I think now there's been a new scenario because what we have to admit, in the same way that you talked about Cuba being a beacon of hope and inspiration, it's not only been to people in Africa, Latin America, or Asia that Cuba's been an example. I mean, the Cuban revolution and its people have been an example to many young people to millions of people in the United States who are hungering for a new type of society or who want to even think critically or different about the society they're living in right now. You know, the fact that Cuba became an example early on in this revolution when it comes to housing reform, 
the fact that Cuba has systematically fought against racism inside the country and also outside of its own borders, like you said, in the battles against apartheid South Africa. The fact that Cuba has advanced so much when it comes to gender and sexuality through the women's organizations, how it's dealt with the LGBTQ question over these past decades. It's clear that Cuba is an example in so many fronts. And lately, particularly since the protests of July 11th, the U.S. government, the National Security Council, the millions of dollars that they put into media uh, and other sectors essentially have been to create the image that, you know, they are so-called minority groups in Cuba that are being negatively affected by the Cuban government or being repressed by the Cuban government. They have created new characters, artists, young black people, gay young people who are somehow the victims of the Cuban government and therefore deserve to be rescued by the United States government. But I asked the question that many Cubans ask, when has the US government ever saved black people anywhere? When has the US government ever saved LGBTQ people anywhere in the world? Have they been saved in Afghanistan? Have they been saved in Iraq or Libya? Were they saved in Guatemala in 54? Were they saved anywhere by US imperialism? But this is something that we definitely have to keep a look at that they are trying to destroy the hard earned legitimacy of the Cuban people and wanting to create a new society and new people. Manolo, you mentioned that the CIA has a playbook and the CIA indeed has a playbook. And when I say the CIA, I don't just mean the Central Intelligence Agency. All of these intelligence agencies, including the Pentagon and corporate America, are working in tandem. And that goes for the, the two ruling class parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. They have a playbook. I mean, I was looking in preparation for this show at the writings of Edward Lansdale, a CIA counterinsurgency specialist in 1962. I was looking at some of the comments by John Stockwell, who was the CIA station chief in Luanda, Angola, after Angola was breaking free from Portuguese fascism and colonialism and being led by the MPLA, the Popular Movement for the Liberation of Angola, which was aligned with Cuba and which was facing the, the seemingly omnipotent military force of the South African apartheid regime, which was supported by the U.S., supported by the CIA, supported by the Pentagon. In this battle, Stockwell's talking about how the CIA was constantly manufacturing consent about all of its wars. And Cuba, of course, is a target in Cuba, but Cuba was also involved in Angola, as we mentioned, in the liberation of Angola. I want to play a video clip. It's John Stockwell speaking to a reporter several decades ago. He's really defecting from the CIA, not to the Soviet Union, not to Cuba. He's defecting to the side of peace. He's defecting to the side of truth-telling. And I want to play it because he's talking about how the CIA actually manipulates and shapes public opinion. And then I want to ask you, is it the same playbook or is it a little bit of a different playbook? Let's just talk about what's actually happening and what the Cuban government and the Cuban people are facing. But first, let's listen to John Stockwell, former CIA station chief in Luanda, Angola. Another thing is to disseminate propaganda to influence people's minds. And this is a major function of the CIA. 
And uh, unfortunately, of course, it overlaps into the gathering of information. You, you have contact with a journalist, you will give him true stories, you'll get information from him, you'll also give him false stories. Did you do buy his confidence with true stories? You buy his confidence and set him up. We've seen this happen in, uh, recently with Jack Anderson, for example, who, who has his intelligence sources, and he has also admitted that he's been set up by them. You know, every fifth story just simply being false. Uh, you also work on their human vulnerabilities to recruit them in a classic sense, to make them your agent so that you can control what they do, so you don't have to set them up sort of, you know, by, by putting one over on them. So you can say, here, plant this one next Tuesday. Can you do this with responsible reporters? Yes, the Church Committee brought it out in 1975, and then Woodward and Bernstein put an article in Rolling Stone a couple of years later. Uh, 400 journalists cooperating with the CIA, uh, including some of the biggest names in the business, mm -hmm. to consciously introduce the stories into the press. Well, give me a concrete example of how you use the press this way, how a false story is planted and how you got it published. Well, for example, in my, my war, the Angola war that I helped to manage, uh, one third of my staff was propaganda. Ironically, it's called covert action inside the CIA. Outside, that means the violent part. Uh, I had propagandists all over the world, principally in London, Kinshasa, and Zambia. We, were, we would take stories which we would write and put them in the Zambia Times, and then pull them out and send them to a, a journalist on our payroll in Europe. But his cover story, you see, would be that he, would, he had gotten them from his stringer in Lusaka, who had gotten them from the Zambia Times. Manolo, it's really something. The, the CIA had to work so much harder back in the 1970s uh, to create false propaganda, because today, with Facebook, uh, certainly with Twitter, uh, the ability to shape a story, influence a story, use bots. You know, let's talk about the difference. Some of it's the same. Some of it's the same. And the, and the tactics may be changed, but the goal is the same. To create a false story, to create a false impression, to demonize the target. And uh, you and Vijay Prashad, an important article in the People's Dispatch, the title of it is, and I encourage all of our listeners you know, to go to the People's Dispatch and read the story, how U.S. interference in Cuba creates a false picture of its society. Now, you wrote this in the aftermath of the July 11th protests. And again, for the people in the United States, that was huge media coverage, shaping the impression of Americans about Cubans rising up en masse. And, you know, I was thinking, wow, you know, when, when the Occupy movement happened here in New York City, where we are, Manolo, a decade ago, and within a couple months, there was a mass movement that the fusion centers and the F FBI described as a peaceful movement. 7,000 people were arrested in this peaceful movement. But if you read the New York Times, you would get that story. It was a minor story. But Cuba, July 11th. Anyway, let's talk about how the media and social media are shaping this story. I mean, it's interesting hearing a CIA agent, a former CIA agent from the 70s and 60s speak in this way, in definite forms and ways. The strategic approach of not just the CIA, like you said, but the intelligence community, the U.S. government at large, 
continues to be the same, which is to create what they now call fake news, but which is essentially to disinform, to disinform public audiences as much as possible as to what the actual conditions on the ground are, to insert as many lies as possible so that it actually begins to sound like it could be possibly truthful. That is a Hitlerian technique that the U.S. government perfected and has sophisticated even more in our time, partly aided by the introduction of information technologies and social media. I mean, the U.S. government to this day continues to heavily employ propagandists, like the CIA agent was mentioning, I would say in a more expansive way. I mean, there are millions of dollars that go today just on Cuba alone to finance several Florida-based media projects that day in, day out, create propaganda, not just against the Cuban revolution, but against all progressive causes or just causes in Latin America at large. Just apart from that, though, there is a new tendency, which is the CIA has, I think, been perfectioning and sophisticating even more, which is that it has been essentially, without having to pay many journalists, it has now created whole new workshops, courses, schools of journalism across Latin America that train many Cuban journalists or many Cuban activists of the opposition to become journalists. And it doesn't necessarily pay them to write. It doesn't tell them what to write, but it already creates a new environment in which they essentially become the new relayers of so-called truth to new audiences. And these are the people who we now would identify as influencers, TikTokers, YouTubers, people who with just their phone, with their computer, sitting in a Starbucks in Miami, Bogota, or any other city in Latin America, sometimes even Madrid, Spain, basically concoct, create new propaganda every day, creating false stories about stories of repression in Cuba, false stories of arrests in Cuba, false stories about murders of journalists in Cuba, which has not taken place since before 1959. They create all sorts of false stories. All with this, the clear support of the United States government, which is a new element that we hadn't seen as much in regards to Cuba, which is just in the past three weeks, we have seen the vociferous, openly declared support of the United States government and its spokesperson and the State Department, National Security Council, to these opposition figures and to these journalists in Cuba. Never before seen has there been so much declared, openly declared support for these agents of the United States government. It's almost a sign of desperation. Very, very important. Manolo, one of the things that jumps out about U.S. propaganda, and again, just for everybody, remember, remember how we were taught to fear and hate Saddam Hussein because he was on the march, because he definitely had weapons of mass destruction. And here we are a million Iraqis dead later, tens of thousands of Americans who are either dead or have life-changing injuries, all of it based on a lie, but presented so convincingly by so many people with such regularity and echoed by the mainstream media that a significant part of the population actually believed it. You know, so we, we have to remember, you know, how demonization works because it makes people forget all that they know. Like right now, the US government 
and all of its sort of auxiliary nonprofits, some from the NED, National Endowment for Democracy, some from USAID, some from the CIA, some, as you say, are not really directly connected to the US agencies. They're in academia or in nonprofits that are getting money from uh, some of these agencies indirectly or are just being trained in the same spirit of sort of US imperialist politics. They're making the argument, this is why I wanna go here. They're making the argument that Cuba needs to be targeted because Cuba has mistreated black people. Now, this is the United States of America. This is a country whose economic and social system is based on the slaughter and genocide of an entire people, the indigenous people of North America. And it's based on the enslavement of Africans. The enslavement of Africans and after the Civil War, the re-enslavement or neo-enslavement of black people in America through Jim Crow and apartheid, which remember existed even when I was alive. I mean, the Civil Rights Act was only 1964. And so here you have a country with such a despicable and obvious record in its treatment of so-called minority peoples, black people in particular, now making the argument that Cuba, the Cuban revolution must be targeted in order to defend the interests of black Cubans. And remember, the US had to defend Kurds in Iraq or the minority population of Albanians in Serbia before the war on Yugoslavia. Suddenly US imperialism and the US ruling class that has profited from and exists because of white supremacist institutions has found in its heart such a tender spot for the rights and needs and aspirations of minority peoples that they're going to war against Cuba, this time not to re-enslave Cuba, not to reconquer it, not to bring it back to the plantation, as you said, but really to help black people in Cuba. Anyway, let's just talk about this new sort of focus of imperialist propaganda against Cuba. I mean, the success of white supremacy and capitalism has consistently based itself on maintaining the division and the fracture of the working class in the United States. And this applies to the imperialist project abroad. Ultimately, we saw it in Yugoslavia. We saw it in Libya. We saw it in Iraq. We've seen it in so many other countries where one of the preconditions for the successful overthrow of another government, of the submission of a country as a new colony into the US sphere of influence is to fracture the unity of its people. That has been extremely clear in the case around Cuba today. Cuba, the country that has, I would say, in the Western Hemisphere, worked the hardest and gotten the closest to eradicating racism. Hasn't fully done it yet, but has been the closest to it. Has been the most consistent and coherent in attacking white supremacy in its own country and abroad is now trying to be divided by the US government with this propaganda around the question of racism. Not just because the US government has no moral to talk about anti-racism is that this is wrong. It's wrong because it also goes against Cuba's history. The history of Cuba's fight for independence going back to the early 1800s is that Cuba's independence movement was the first independence movement in Latin America that was abolitionist that fought for the integration of all of Cuba's people, black, white, 
Asian, indigenous, mestizo, and mulatto peoples. And at this point, they understand, the U.S. government understands that in order to break down the capacity of the Cuban people to resist, it must break that unity. And they have not just brought the question of racism to the forefront, but they have brought now the question of homophobia. They have brought a series of other so-called vulnerable points, as the CIA terms it, to try to break this unity. It will be a hard battle, though, because the Cuban people, again, in their long historical project of nation building, have focused so much on actually building an organic unity that can't just be bought out, cannot just be fractured at the wishes of the United States government. And we need our friends in the United States to see, again, that there is no basis to a discourse that affirms that Cuba is somehow the most racist, the most vehemently homophobic, or is the most elitist or classist country in the world. When we hear discourses that say that Fidel Castro was a plantation owner, or the leaders of the Cuban Revolution are somehow white and rich, as opposed to a poor and black oppressed community in Cuba, we have to immediately identify that as lies based in nothing other than the heads of CIA propagandists. Indeed, here you have the United States supporting Bolsonaro in Brazil. I mean, who's a you know admirer of Hitler and the extreme racism directed against Afro-Brazilian people, which Lula and the Workers' Party and the other left forces in Brazil have tried to overturn. But it was they who were targeted by the United States. And if we look all over Latin America, in Venezuela, in Bolivia, earlier in Ecuador, in Nicaragua, earlier also in Argentina, certainly today, again, with Cuba being the anchor of the, of the project for independence and sovereignty and freedom, not to mention social justice in Latin America, Cuba, it can't be lost on someone who has any degree of objective faculty that the regimes that are supported by the United States have historically been rooted in fascism, in the exercise of military dictatorship, in the maintenance of extreme white supremacy within the continent of Latin America. And none of that matters to the United States. The U.S. only seems to care about minority people in the governments that have reclaimed control over their land, labor, and resources. And I think it's really important for progressive people to understand what's at stake in Cuba. I mean, again, the U.S. started targeting Cuba before Fidel announced that it was a socialist project, you know, which happened in response to the U.S.-sponsored Bay of Pigs invasion in April 1961. It was then that Cuba says, we're socialist. But even prior to the announcement of the socialist project, when Cuba was simply a country determined to be free and independent and sovereign, it earned the wrath of the United States. And I believe, Manolo, ultimately we should frame this issue like that for all of Latin America. The US only wants puppets and clients in Latin America, and it doesn't care whether they're racist, and it doesn't care whether they're fascist, and it doesn't care whether they're military dictators, as long as they are proxies of Washington and Wall Street. And I think if progressive people lose sight of this fundamental question, they can be vulnerable to the propaganda of imperialism. 
because it's echoed everywhere. There's no voice in any of the mainstream media that says, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe Cuba's right. Maybe Cuba's telling the truth. Maybe Marco Rubio, the conductor in Miami, who along with the other counter-revolutionaries in Miami has been helping to organize this crusade to topple the government in Cuba. There's no voice like that in the mainstream media. It's not allowed. But we're told we live in a free country. Yes, you're a free country, but if you're a reporter and say, you know what, I think Cuba's right. And I think the Washington government, I think Biden is wrong. And I think we should lift the blockade because using food and weapon as we, as we established at the Nuremberg trials, using food and weapon, a form of collective punishment against the whole people is not only wrong, it's not only immoral, it's not only illegal, it's a crime against humanity. Is there one voice in all of the mainstream media here in the United States, the democratic mainstream media of the United States that says that or could say that? The answer I would say is no. Anyway, Manolo, again, also the need for independent journalism like People's Dispatch, like Breakthrough News. I mean, people in the United States who are part of the progressive movement need to look to progressive alternative media sources if they want to actually understand the truth. I mean, now is a particularly important time, not just for progressives, but for all peace-loving peoples to actually defend Cuba's right to live, Cuba's right to exist, the right of its people to build their own society, their own development without any interference or intervention by the United States government. When you said, Brian, you know, what's at stake? with Cuba right now, I think it's the future of a whole continent, of all of Latin America. If U.S. counter-revolution in Cuba were to triumph, not only would it be a major setback for the Cuban people, a major setback for Black people in Cuba, it would be a major setback for all of the peoples of Latin America, because we would lose an anchor for independence and sovereignty in the region. We would lose a convener of Latin American regional integration. And that is ultimately what the US government wants to achieve, to disarticulate Cuba, to overthrow the Cuban government would mean to overthrow all processes for transformation in Latin America. And it's important for our independent journalists, but again, for anyone who thinks with their own head, who is capable of seeing through the lies to speak up, we need essentially a new choruses of voices willing to say, let Cuba live. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And Manolo, you were part of a larger coalition. I was part of that same group. Others like Code Pink and others, many from the peace movement, from academia. When we saw what the United States was doing in terms of orchestrating protests in Cuba, because again, it's the U.S. economic blockade that makes access to food or medicine or electricity a problem for ordinary Cubans. And they're undoubtedly frustrated. If you don't have air conditioning or lights in the middle of summer, a hot summer, if you have to wait longer in line for food or medicine because of an economic blockade imposed by the most powerful country in the world, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to think, when will this end? When, when is there some relief? And then the same government that imposes this collective punishment 
on the Cuban people turns around and says when they, even a small number, come into the street, they say, see, look, the Cubans are fighting for freedom. The Cubans want regime change. When it's obvious that what the Cubans want is food and medicine and electricity, the things that the blockade is designed to prevent them from having. And so when we talk as people in the United States about a government that speaks in our name, if we don't challenge the assertions of this government and show solidarity with Cuba and the Cuban people at this moment, then we become complicit with the machinations of the government. And if you have any sort of ethical, moral fiber, you have to do something right now to stand with Cuba. And in those days right after July 11th, when we could clearly see what this was, we organized a project to put a full page ad in the New York Times. And the slogan was, and it came out on July 23rd, it came out, uh, let Cuba live. And then there were other manifestations of let Cuba live protest and solidarity in this city, in New York City in the days afterwards. So many people joined Manolo. So many people said, yes, put my name on that ad. I mean, we had an overwhelming response. We started a project to put a full page ad in the New York Times on a, on a Friday. And by Monday, uh, we had so much support, which shows that with organization, with mobilization, with determination, we can build a solidarity movement with Cuba, which means first and foremost to refute the lies of those who are trying to dismantle and overthrow this cherished revolution. So I wanna just ask you as we wrap up, that was one thing that happened. That was the, the New York Times ad. Beautiful ad, it can be republished in other newspapers if you're activists elsewhere. Take out an ad in your local paper. That creates a conversation in your area. What does it mean to let Cuba live? That means it gives a, a chance to talk about the blockade. Most Americans don't know what the blockade is. They don't know its violence. Anyway, what can we do? What should we do? What should the movement do right now? Here we are in the beginning of November. Obviously, Marco Rubio and the imperialists are salivating because they think that with enough funding, limitless funding, in fact, that they can create problems, political problems, based on the economic hardships that they caused with the blockade. So what is it, Manolo, what should the people in the United States do about it? Well, it's an important thing to mention, which is that the release of the Let Cuba Live letter, which was published in the New York Times, immediately in the next three days, over 50,000 people across the United States signed this letter in support. And I'm talking about trade unionists, academics, intellectuals, artists, scientists, a broad representation of, I would say, rather sane people, people who believe in common sense in this country who are saying no to U.S. intervention in Cuba. To those who are listening to us now, we should prepare and be aware that for November 15th, the U.S. is planning with this limitless funding that you mentioned what they want to term another spontaneous protest, a protest that they want to consider to be one of civil rights, a peaceful one of civil disobedience, but that we already know from revelations made in the last few weeks that not only is it being funded by the United States government, but it has ultimately violent ends to overthrow the Cuban government. 
that it has no plans to actually answer to the demands of the Cuban people, which is to lift the blockade, which is to end the terrorist uh, sanctions against the Cuban people. If those things were to be answered, then we'd be having a different conversation now. So we have to be aware that the U.S. government is planning essentially another chaotic moment on November 15th. We should not be surprised by it when it comes. And that the plans of U.S. intervention will not end there. So we have a common and collective responsibility to continue to expose the dirty hand of the U.S. government and all these things beyond November 15th. I said that was the last point, but I actually want to ask you one more question. And I know time is short. There's going to also be an impression left in the U.S. media if the November 15th protests happen that these protests speak for the Cuban people, that they are the manifestation of the aspirations of the Cuban people. Uh, because you've been there, because you've spent a good amount of time in Cuba, just help us understand if there are protests on November 15th, do they speak for the majority of the Cuban people? Do the people uh, view the revolution in an affirmative and positive way? Again, I want to ask you this because people are going to be inundated with the, the idea that any protest in Cuba against the government will be the voice of the Cuban people. Well, the problem is that it's the U.S. media who often becomes the judge and juror of who speaks for the Cuban people. It's the Miami Herald and the Washington Post and the New York Times who often make the decision, obviously aided by their friends in the CIA, on who speaks for the Cubans. Is it the two million people who go out in defense of the Cuban Revolution every May Day, parading and protesting in defense of Cuban Revolution every May Day every year? Or is it a hundred people who gather on a corner in Havana to protest? Who decides this? Ultimately, we have to expose U.S. imperialism's role in creating this false majority, which does not exist in Cuba. In fact, we should prepare to, on November 15th, to see that millions of Cubans actually go back to work and go back to school that day for the first time since the pandemic mode with the full security of having been vaccinated with one of Cuba's five different vaccines. That is what the Cuban people will be doing. That's what the majority will speak for, for the right to actually go back to a certain tranquility despite this period of sanctions and pandemic. Not a group of fools essentially paid for by the United States government and backed up by the State Department so they can protest in one corner in Havana. All right, we're gonna leave it there. We ask everybody stay tuned, but be ready to act to show solidarity with the Cuban people and with the Cuban revolution. We were joined today by Manolo De Los Santos. He is founder and co-director of the People's Forum he is also a researcher with the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, are now available every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our new partner, Breakthrough News. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 